Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Uh, you're going to see some really significant initiatives on uh, public safety, on health care, on housing uh, uh, right out of the gate. And uh, it's important for me uh, to, uh, to deliver for British Columbians on these issues. British Columbians can't afford to wait. All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and that was the voice of David Eby in the spotlight today. He will be sworn in this morning as British Columbia's 37th premier. We've got terrific live coverage and analysis for you on the show today as the former attorney general takes charge in B.C. Live coverage of the ceremony. It's starting at 10 a.m. EB's first speech as premier. Bring you that live today, too. And we've got some fantastic guests lined up on the show this morning to discuss and analyze this new era in B.C. politics. David Eby setting a very high bar for himself here. He said he has high expectations for his new government. Housing, health care, the crisis on the streets of the downtown east side, which he has promised to take over and clean up. So he says he will start next week as well. The legislature in session, he expects to be introducing bills immediately on all these files. So we've got this covered for you on the show today. Spend the whole morning here with me as we analyze and cover this story for you. Of course, time for your calls on the open line today as well. One of the big priorities that David Eby has outlined here for this new government Action on housing. Have a listen to what he had to say here uh, last week on the housing file. If you're a family that earns a decent income and you're looking around for a place to rent or buy and you can't find it, you wonder if there's a place for you in the province. If you're a young person living at home, you want to move out of mom and dad's place and you can't find somewhere to go, you wonder, when does my life begin as an adult? If you're a senior choosing between groceries and paying the rent, how do you feel secure in your home? The issue of housing is front of mind for so many British Columbians, and we need to take urgent action on that. Okay, is David Eby promising action on the housing file and many other points as well? Okay, let's discuss that housing issue right now with my guest, Peter Waldkirch. Peter is a lawyer and housing advocate. He is a director with Abundant Housing Vancouver. It's a nonprofit promoting increased housing supply. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Peter, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for being here. Your group has written a letter directly to David Eby this week, encouraging him to take, take that bold action on housing and to keep his promises on it as well. What are you hoping to see from him and his new government on housing? Yeah, well, thanks. Well, first of all, I should point out that the letter wasn't just written by Abundant Housing Vancouver. It was written by a coalition of sort of like-minded pro-housing groups uh, in BC. Homes for Living, YYJ, which is based out of Victoria. Um, yes in New West, Kitsilano for inclusivity, and Deltons for people-oriented places, Delpop. We all sort of got together mm-hmm. because we think that 
you know, housing is too important to be neglected by the province. For too long now, we've basically given sole um, sort of municipalities have really been driving the car when it comes to housing, if I could put it that way. They've been sort of yeah. setting policy, setting land use, setting restrictions on housing supply and controlling everything. And we think it's time for the province to sort of realize this is a provincial problem. It's something that requires provincial attention. So we're really happy to see that uh, the new government, is, the new uh, premier is talking about intervening in housing. And we think there's a lot of great points in his housing platform. We really strongly support it. But at the same time, we urge him to really think big and to be bold when it comes to this because this problem has been building for decades and it's not going to be solved overnight. It requires really bold action to make a difference. Yeah, and like you mentioned, a lot of these housing issues are in sort of municipal jurisdiction and one of the things that EB has talked about is some sort of provincial intervention here that he would require densification, for example. So like in single-family zone neighborhoods, he's talked about you should be able to put four homes on a single family lot where right now there might be one house put four homes on that same lot now that sets up some potential conflict here with municipalities if they feel like this government is intervening and taking over and inter and interfering on in their jurisdiction let me play a, a clip here for you uh peter of david eby on this point here he is talking about how he's going to work with municipalities on to get more housing built have a listen then i'll get your thoughts You'll see, uh, uh, certainly, from our government that we're going to partner with those fast-growing municipalities to provide support so they can deliver housing. It's going to be a a different relationship, but it's going to be a very positive relationship with cities. I'm excited about it. Okay. He says it's going to be a different relationship, but positive. I don't know. There's already some complaints from some mayors around B.C. about this. What do you think? Well, look, I think that, uh, you know, David Eby is a politician. He has to sort of, you know, say the right things. And I do hope that there's, there are good municipal politicians out there who need support from the provincial government to reform what's fundamentally a broken system for delivering housing. But at the same time, I think we as, as citizens and residents of British Columbia need to recognize the realities that municipalities have demonstrably failed when it comes to housing. We made a decision, yeah. you know, back in the 1920s or 1930s or so to give virtually exclusive powers over land use, over zoning, right, where you, what you can build where, two cities. And what have we got from this? We have widespread housing shortages, yes, in Vancouver, but across, uh, not just in Vancouver, in other cities across BC and Canada and the US. We have a climate crisis because people are being forced into uh, long commutes and sprawl instead of being able to live in complete communities close to their families, close to their friends, close to their jobs. So we have to yeah. confront the reality that the, the status quo of planning and land use in British Columbia is broken. It has yeah. failed. It has a bad track record. So I think once you re- recognize that, then we can start thinking about solutions. What is the right level of government to sort of set yeah. standards for how land use should be approached for delivering housing? And I think if we are frank and honest about it, it's giving this complete control to municipalities hasn't worked. Speaking of Peter Waldkirch, abundant housing, British Columbia, getting set for David Eby to be sworn in as the next premier. So one of the things that he has promised on this file, Peter, is to densify in single-family neighborhoods, as we discussed. He wants to see more homes built. He thinks that's one of the big problems. Not enough homes are being built. He wants to rapidly increase that, including in uh, neighborhoods that right now that may be just single-family zone neighborhoods. So a lot of people have raised concerns about that. Like, hang on a second here. If you start putting four plexes on these lots that right now just have one house, 
aren't you going to have like Carmageddon? You're going to have p- problems with parking, infrastructure. Will there be enough local schools? That kind of thing. Here's what he had to say about that. He was on a show here a couple of weeks back. I asked him about that precise point. Here's what he had to say. And I'll get your thoughts. It's David Eby. And we need to respond to this housing crisis proportionally. It's serious for families out there. And I know sometimes it's a pain to look for parking for a little bit longer. But to compare that to the the strain and stress of families that, and individuals who just can't find a place to live, um, I think right. we need to just refocus. Okay, so basically saying it's it's better to have a tough time finding a parking spot than it is having an impossible time finding an actual affordable place to live. Peter, your thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, I agree with that, right? We spend a lot of um, time and money and energy in this city, in this province, providing homes for cars, right? Tremendous yeah. amounts of public land are given away for to, for people to store their cars, right? Whereas the suffering and the, the economic damage, the social damage, the just the all sorts of harm that's being caused by our crisis housing shortage is, I think, impossible to calculate. I think it's also important to recognize, too, though, right, that we have to think about actual solutions and the solutions to uh, to parking problems, to traffic problems, is not more cars. How do you get more cars? It's by sprawling out even more. When you have to, that's what causes traffic, is when people need to hop in their car just to buy a liter of milk or some eggs or something like that, right? When we build denser communities, more complete communities, where there's shopping in your neighborhood, when there's jobs in your neighborhood, when there's a bar and a restaurant and your friends can live sort of close together, that's when we can have more complete communities where people can get around more conveniently without a car with transit and things like that and you know that's the when you look around the world in europe for example the cities that are being the most successful at attracting jobs at attracting high good jobs prosperity and growth are the cities that are building these sorts of communities right it's not some scary horrible carmageddon thing i think people like living in these sort of rich vibrant complete communities and i think Vancouver needs to move in that direction Big day in British Columbia as David Eby prepares to be sworn in as the new premier of British Columbia. That will be happening in the 10 a.m. hour here. So make sure you keep it locked with me here this morning. We'll bring you live coverage of the swearing in ceremony. The first speech by David Eby as the 37th premier of British Columbia. We got some great guests coming up and your calls on the open line. I got open phone lines right now. What do you hope to see from this new premier and this new government? Phone me right now and let me know. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Peter Waldkirch is my guest. Let's go to your calls. Rick in Port Moody. Hi, Rick. Oh, hey, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call. You know what? I'm... uh... I, I am so supportive of this whole uh, sustainable living area for, you know, but municipalities and people in the areas need to realize that means developers need to be able to be, build a mixture of high rise, mid rise and low rise, just so that they can afford all the other amenities, the grocery stores, the pubs, the, you know, the, the dogs, uh, the pet stores, all of that stuff. You need to be able to, you know, to, to build up. And there seems to be a, still a push against that. And the second thing yeah. that I really want to say is, is I, I really it frustrates me as a, as a single homeowner who bought specifically because I wanted that style of lifestyle uh, to all of a sudden, you know, after making my investment to be told, hang on a second, we're going to uproot that idea from you and we're going to allow fourplexes in your in your right. single area home. That really frustrates me as well. Build where we are along the corridors with the you know, types of homes that they are, you know, the high rises, mid rises, low rises, but 
for, for God's sake, stop trying to um, change the lifestyle that I and thousands and thousands and thousands of other people have decided to choose uh, for, you know, for uh, as a solution, because that, that okay. frustrates me. OK, Rick, thank you for the call. I think that kind of sums up, Peter, some of the challenges here for this densification idea. You know, you want to have a fight. You go into some of these old single-family neighborhoods and say, hey, we're putting in condos on your street now. What do you think of that? And see what kind of reaction you get. Your thoughts. Go ahead. You know, look, I'm sympathetic to people who don't want to see change in their neighborhoods because change can be difficult. But when you're looking at the scale of the challenges our society is facing, I, I don't think anybody has the right, especially in the city of Vancouver and the core sort of downtown sort of neighborhoods, which I think is all of the city of Vancouver, basically, when you're minutes away from the jobs, like Broadway and downtown are the first and second largest job centers in the entire province. If you live minutes away from that, I just don't think it's reasonable to expect that your neighborhood is going to stay frozen in average. Okay. It's going to stay the same way it was in the 50s. We need to embrace some change and some growth for the health of our economy and society. Okay, Chris and Langley on the open line. Hi, Chris, go ahead. Yeah, guys, uh, in my opinion, I think it would ruin the neighborhood. It would ruin Vancouver. Uh, I can tell you from experience, moving out to Langley 12 years ago, uh, lots of elbow room, uh, get around quite easily. You actually leave. I left Vancouver. I left North Vancouver and that congestion and that yeah. uh, high density. I get out here, and within 12 years, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much development. Of course, we've got so much more land to, to work with. There's so much development going on. It's a thousand people here, a hundred cars more there. Now two hundred. You come down two hundred, coming home from work, and it and it takes you a half an hour, forty minutes longer than it used to twelve years ago. It's only getting worse. I mean, the, the development's just go, all around. It's just it's exploding. And so you add that to Vancouver, where you don't have the room that we do in Langley, at least to to spread out. It's going to destroy yeah. the city. Thank you, Chris. This is the this is the type of pushbacks that local governments get on these ideas, and it's something EB is going to have to confront. Let's squeeze in one more call. Jeff, also in Langley. Hi, Jeff. You got thirty seconds. Oh, he's in Surrey. Jeff in Surrey. Go ahead. Close enough. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> looking for a, for a solution, a possible part solution to the problem of the East Side is they uh, the mayor of Vancouver wants a hundred more officers. Well, there yeah. might be hundred people looking for. Might be a hundred officers in Surrey looking for a job. Maybe that might be a solution, part of solution for everybody. Well, if he's got the money for it, I, so far I haven't seen him deliver the money to pay for all those nurses and, and police officers the new Vancouver mayor has promised. Uh, out of time, Peter, thank you for your time today and thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Welcome back to the show. As you may know, we've got a surge in uh, respiratory illnesses in British Columbia right now. A lot of people are coming down sick, not only with COVID, but people are getting the flu. They're getting some of these new viruses that are circulating. A lot of kids getting sick. We'll talk about that later on the show today. Uh, also, for people who are feeling sick and maybe calling in sick to work, I mean, this has been a big problem. Uh, Unmet, lack of attendance of workers who are sick and staying home. Now check out what the city of Surrey is doing now. They are starting up an attendance support program. An attendance support program for Surrey employees. They want to try and reduce the number of people who are calling in sick. So here's the deal with this. Staff who remain help taking a look at the Email they put out to their staff at Surrey, in the city of Surrey. Staff who remain healthy and do not require the use of any sick time 
will qualify for a $50 gift card. Staff who are in the lowest 20% of sick time users, uh, stop calling in sick so much. If you are in the lowest number of employees are calling in sick, you get a $25 gift card. Not very much, though, is it? I think some people might still start be calling in sick anyway. Here's the problem, though. Like some people will look at a program like that and say, "Wait a minute, are you incur? Is this effectively encouraging people, even if you're feeling sick, you come into work anyway, because you're going to get a few extra bucks in your pay packet? Is that such a good idea?" Got Darren Saul standing by to discuss this. First, have a listen to this report here now from Discovery News. This is on the costs of people who come to work when they are sick. Have a listen to this. Absenteeism is a serious issue for employee productivity and thus is often studied. But now science is catching on to presenteeism, or the act of working while sick. New studies in this area have found you're not helping, you're hurting. One study in population health management found $1,600 are lost per employee annually because of presenteeism. Okay, presenteeism. Yeah, there's a big cost to absenteeism when workers aren't around. But what if workers show up and they're sick? And they make other people sick in the office or the workplace. Then could it cost even more? This is really interesting, I think, what the city of Surrey is doing. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Darren Saul. Darren is an employment lawyer at Samfuru to Markin. Very pleased to welcome Darren. Hey, Darren, thanks for coming on today. Hey, Mike, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, you bet. Is this a problem for a lot of workplaces right now, especially during, you know, the past few years of the pandemic? Of course, a lot of people are... Ex- taking time off, they're sick, they're staying at home, all their bosses are telling them, don't come in here if you're not feeling if you're not feeling well, if you're sick, stay home. Now you've got the city of Surrey saying, well, if you if you do come into work and you don't take sick time, we're going to give you a bonus. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think it's a, it's an interesting policy to say the least. It's um, you know, how responsible it is. You know, con- considering the the state we just came out of, the pandemic we just came out of and and you know, they're talking about the surge in numbers as you as you hit on before, I mean, it seems to be an irresponsible policy that, you know, the wording says, you know, people who remain healthy will get this benefit. And I mean, we yeah. all know that, you know, that's not going to save them. People are going to see this benefit. And, and what else do you get? You know, it, management's going to see that. Are you going to get notes in your files? Are you going to get preferential treatment? Um, I mean, these are all things that, that people will not be able to ignore, I think. And, and this could be a huge problem, um, you know, for workplaces, you know, encouraging people to come in sick, which, you know, just like you said, with the presenteeism, I mean, you, right. you could have just spreading, it just spreading in workplaces. And, and from an employment standpoint, I mean, this raises a whole host of issues. I mean, you've got protected leaves um, in the Employment Standards Act, and, and this could be seen as, you know, potentially... Uh, an attempt by employers to, or an employer at least, um, to have people not take advantage of these protected leaves or even punish them for taking these protected leaves. Um, what, what is that? What is a protected leave? So the Employment Standards Act of, of British Columbia has the minimum employment standards that employers must provide to employees um, you know, who, who are eligible within BC. And, and for example, you, you've got three days of unpaid leave, you've got up to five days of paid leave, um, sick time in the Employment Standards Act. And a policy yeah. like this may be seen as penalizing people who maybe take those five days, right? Okay, which is a potential problem for employers. Right. And it's interesting, and I, and I think it's important to point out, like, 
the city of Surrey here in the, with this program, they're, they're not saying, if you are sick, we want you to come to work anyway. They're not saying that. We're, they're not saying we want you to work while you're sick. They're, yeah. saying if, they're saying if you remain healthy and you don't take any sick time, then we're going to give you a bonus. We'll give you, we'll give you 50 bucks if you don't take any sick time. If you're among the lowest 20% of sick time users in your group, we'll give you, we'll give you 25 bucks. I, I think this is, I don't know, I think this money's kind of chintzy, really. 25 bucks, what's that going to get you? But, you know, it, it does it effectively, though. Like, there, of course, they would never admit that we're encouraging people, if you're, even if you got the sniffles, to come into work. They would never admit that. They're saying if you're sick, stay home. But do you think it's effectively, in a, in a way, an incentive to come in, even if you are feeling a bit ill? I, I mean, I, I think that's going to be the natural uh, fallout from something like this, is people will see, you know, th- there's a benefit. You know, what, what they're offering is a benefit if you attend work. Um, you know, there's the wording. You know, they, obviously they're not saying, you know, come in regardless of whether you're sick or not. Um, you know, they've, they've got the wording in there, which does say, you know, people who are healthy will get this benefit. Um, you know, it, it, it flags a number of issues for me. You know, what if you have someone who's got a, a chronic illness, you know, a, a chronic disease in a workplace? Are they, you know, they're not eligible for this program, perhaps. They have to take a couple of days off a year or a couple of weeks off a year due to an illness. Um, you know, these people are, are potential, you know, it's potential discrimination there. Um, you know, these people are, are manifestly not going to be able to take advantage of this by, by virtue of their illness or, you know, if they have uh, you know, mental health or, uh, you know, issues that they have to deal with medication or treatment or things like that. I mean, this could really affect people like that. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, just like you kind of you, you hit on with the, the, the numbers here, I mean, fifty yeah. bucks or, or twenty-five bucks. I mean, you take your sick day, you'll probably get paid more than more than that, anyways. Yeah. Speaking of Darren Saul, Darren's an employment lawyer. The city of Surrey bringing in that program now, incentivizing their municipal employees come to work, stop taking so much sick time. We'll give you a bonus on your paycheck if you show up for work. The other thing to keep in mind, I think this is interesting, is you have one level of government here, a municipal government, trying to encourage people to come in to work and give them a bonus if they show up and don't take sick days. And then you've got the provincial government, which has just brought in paid sick days in British Columbia, right? Just saying, like, if you're sick, if you are sick, don't go to work, stay home. And we passed a law requiring your employee to, to pay you for those days off. Is it five paid sick days a year now, Darren? Is that what the law is now? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, five paid sick days a year in B.C. right now is the law of the land. And that's something that employers have kind of pushed back on. Let's listen to Dan Kelly here. He's the president of the B.C. Fe- uh, the Federation of Independent Business, and they represent small business in Canada. They don't like these paid sick days in B.C. Have a listen. Small business owners, of course, understand the need for for employees who are sick to stay home. But my goodness, could the government have chosen a worse time to add a giant new cost to the backs of small businesses? Yeah, I can understand small businesses are struggling in in a weird economy right now. And these paid sick days are just another sort of cost input for them. But Darren, we got five paid sick days available to people in British Columbia. Now, are, in your experience, are a lot of people taking those paid sick days? Is, is there any kind of pushback from employers on it? I, I haven't in my in my practice. I haven't really seen too much pushback. I think people are taking them when they need to. And I mean, considering yeah. the message that we've been getting for the last two and a half years, 
think it's the you know the responsible thing to do and and uh you know the government's been you know the provincial government at least has been sending that message if you're sick stay home you know we don't want another lockdown we don't want other other things like that and i think that's the impetus behind putting these paid sick days in place is to not penalize employees as well i mean i see it from the yeah. employer's perspective um you know but these are people who who work for a living as well the, the employees who, who need that their, their jobs and their income can your boss fire you for taking too much time off with illnesses i mean we've heard a lot about long covid people who get some of these illnesses that stick around for a long time maybe missing work like can your boss legally fire you for calling in sick too much so, I mean, this is always a fact kind of driven analysis. I, I think, you know, the biggest thing with being terminated in BC is unless you're being discriminated against, your employer can terminate you for, for any reason, but they must pay you severance. I think that's the difference yeah. here. So terminating you for just being absent and not going to pay you appropriate severance, um, then that's a problem. If they're terminating you directly because of your illness um, or something related to your illness where it goes beyond being, you know, a huge burden on the employer, um, then no, they, they can't do that. If you take a couple sick days or you're protected sick days and you're terminated, that's a, a, that's a definite breach. All right. Talking paid sick days, five paid sick days a year in BC. The city of Surrey encouraging workers don't take time off sick. If you show up to work, we'll pay you a bonus. Uh, we got Darren Saul as my guest. Ton of phone calls here too. Kay in Vancouver. Hi, Kay. Go ahead. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I'm, I'm sick, but I'm self-employed, so I'm on my own sick time. <laughs> I have another question. I'm always interested when you have the employment lawyers on your show. Yeah. With job applications, there's some strange questions coming up now. Okay. Uh, asking about ethnicity, how do you identify as a gender? Mm-hmm. And these are on, on, um, job application websites that are big corporations. Are those legal questions to ask? Okay, interesting question. Darren, what's the answer? It's a very interesting question. And, and I mean, questions that they're asking in those those applications, I've never seen anything like that. But, but I mean, you know, in... In hiring someone, you are allowed to ask certain certain questions. You typically don't ask about uh, gender or things like that. I think it really depends on the context. Um, if they're asking, you know, in order to figure out how to identify you or to address you, then I think there probably wouldn't be too much of an issue there. But if they're factoring those things into hiring decisions um, and you're, you're being denied opportunities because of discrimination, then that becomes a larger issue. Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's illegal, isn't it? Yeah, that would yeah. be. That would be. Of course, and, of course, and then it is. You, you'd have human rights complaints. Uh, you know that, that could potentially stem from that. Definitely. Sure, Michelle in Vancouver. Hi, Michelle. Go ahead. <clears throat> yeah. Hi. Um, yeah. So, to, to sort of uh, leverage off the human rights comment, I think that three, uh, the unintended consequence of their proactive program is uh, human rights discrimination against those that are sick. In addition to that, mm. uh, the this is a benefit which is likely taxable. So the reality is, is that these people won't get all that money. No, I mean, thank you for pointing that out. Like if you get a $50 bonus on your paycheck for not calling in sick, uh, Darren, would you pay taxes on that? Typically you would. It would be treated yeah. as, as a form of income and, and you'd be, you'd be taxed on that. And so 
you know, the fact that they're giving a gift card or, or, or whatnot, it, it really could be a taxable benefit. I mean, you have to talk to the, to, to the accounting guys, the, the tax experts on that. But yeah, yeah I think that's not outside the, the realm. Definitely. I think I'd, I think I'd rather stay home. I mean, you pay fifty bucks, and then you're paying tax on top of it. It's not much. Duncan in Vancouver. Hi, Duncan. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, so, I small business owner. We've done the whole uh, uh, unlimited vacation, or sorry, unlimited sick time. It was abused. We've uh, gone. We are on the five day, and mm. people use that. The problem is to incentivize. It'd be awesome. But the problem is then you end up with people who come in sick, and it's basically the people who are abusing it are the younger generation. We have people who have been working for us for over 30 years. They don't abuse their five sick days. They sometimes take two, three. It's the people in the 20s and 30s that use the five, and then they want more, and then they wonder why they're not getting paid. So it's a new generation. Interesting. Okay. Thank you for that, Duncan. Let's squeeze another one in here. Robin and Langley. Hi, Robin. Go ahead. Robin, you got 30 seconds, okay? Robin, go ahead. Thank you. That was, yeah. that was, hello? Yeah, go ahead. You got 30 seconds here, Robin. Oh, sorry. You know, I worked for Community Living um, Semiami Society, and they used to do this like 20 years ago. It was, uh, it was a total incentive thing. You're not off by the end of the year. You're not off sick or anything. And come to the end of the year, you get a paid day off. Yeah, do you think it would do you think that would uh encourage people to come into work when they no. are sick? It wouldn't. No. Okay. Okay. No, I, I, I personally not in this day and age, no, because uh it's it's more valuable, I think, to stay home and not get people sick. Yeah. But I'm just saying that it's been going on for a long time. So been around. Yeah, thank you for yeah. that, Robin. Okay, Darren, thanks for coming on today. Not a problem. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, you're going to see some really significant initiatives on uh, public safety, on health care, on housing uh, uh, right out of the gate. And uh, it's important for me uh, to, uh, to deliver for British Columbians on these issues. British Columbians can't afford to wait. Okay, that's David Eby speaking with reporters this week, and we're getting set for David Eby to be sworn in here shortly as the 37th Premier of British Columbia. The audience is assembled at this moment at Musqueam Community Centre. The ceremonies have not begun there. We will be bringing you some live coverage and analysis here over the next hour or so. Make sure you keep it locked here with me all morning here now for this coverage. It's going to be fascinating here now. David Eby, the former Attorney General, taking over from John Horgan. Big shoes to fill there. And Horgan will also be at this ceremony today. He will deliver remarks. And then it will be David Eby sworn in as the Premier of British Columbia by Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin, followed by his first speech as Premier. So all this is happening shortly. Taking a look at the live feed from the Musqueam Community Centre. Hasn't started yet. We'll be dropping in and out of the live coverage there for you over the next hour or so. Okay, we've got a great panel uh, for you here to discuss and analyze our new Premier, Caroline Elliott, Vice President of the B.C. Liberal Party. Very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks a lot for doing this. And Jeffrey Ferrier on the line. Jeffrey is a Senior Vice President, Hill & Knowlton Strategies. Hi, Jeffrey. Howdy. 
Hey, guys, thanks a lot to both of you for doing this. Hey, Jeffrey, let me go to you first. I know you're an NDP supporter here, and this is an exciting day for the NDP and for the government here. David Eby stepping in. What are you looking for here and from David Eby as the next premier? What do you expect to hear from him in, in this speech here this morning, do you think? Well, I'm looking. Uh, I am excited that David Eby is going to become a uh, premier and NDP supporter. Uh, just so folks on the I'm looking for uh, from David some clarity on the actions he's going to take to address the problems he's identified in his 100-day plan. So the, the issues you've been talking about this morning, housing, public safety, uh, uh, downtown east side, access to health care and climate change, uh, put some meat on the bones of the priorities he's outlined uh, 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 as he was premier designate. Yeah, for sure. He has set a very high bar for himself here. He said he said in his own words, he has high expectations of himself and for his new government. And he's outlined some pretty bold promises. But like you said, like there's there's still not a lot of details in how he intends to achieve some of these. Caroline, what are you looking for here? Well, I mean, David Eby is a smart guy, and I don't think anyone denies that for a second. And, and he's smart enough to know that life in BC isn't great for a lot of people after five years of NDP government. So I think what his best bet is, and I think what we'll see, is, is an attempt to sort of try to separate himself uh, from that record as if he hasn't been a senior member of the government responsible for some of the files where we're seeing some of the worst outcomes, whether it's public safety and his role in the deteriorating state of that uh, as attorney general or on the housing front where we've seen skyrocketing prices. So what he's coming in and saying is, and we heard him just at the top of your show saying British Columbians can't afford to wait, actions needed on these files. He's right. And I mean, I couldn't agree with him more, except he's been there for five years. So what's he planning on Mm. doing differently that he hasn't already achieved before? Okay, let's listen to another clip of David Eby here speaking a few days ago, and we'll get your thoughts, guys. So here is Eby talking about his first 100 days in office, which begins today. David Eby, then I'll get your thoughts. In my first 100 days as leader, this is what you will see from our government as priorities. The issue of housing. For the people who are living in the streets, absolutely. But beyond that, for the families that are earning a decent income out there and you're looking around and you can't find a place you can afford to buy, you can't find a place you can afford to rent, we are on your side. We will deliver that housing for you and we will make sure that that happens. It's uh, David Eby, David Eby there in an earlier news conference as we prepare for him to be sworn in as the premier and laying out some pretty bold promises there, Jeffrey, on, on housing, not just tackling the homeless crisis, which everyone sees in places like the downtown east side, but he's also talked a lot about middle class housing and building housing for people who've got, you know, some pretty good, stable jobs, but can't afford to get into a house. Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think David Eby is going to lean into the housing file uh, more than uh, Premier Horgan did. You know, uh, uh, I hear the, well, he was there for five years, so why didn't he, he fix the problem when he was there? It's different yeah. to be um, someone sitting around the cabinet table and being the person in charge. And I think that what we're going to see from David, and I think it's going to be as early as Monday, uh, is uh, aggressive, comprehensive action to uh, uh, increase the affordability of housing for uh, British Columbians. His, his plan was far-reaching, uh, aggressive. That's who he is. That's what he's going to do. And uh, we'll see if the uh, opposition, uh, who's been calling for that action for a long time, is swift in uh, supporting the legislation that I expect he's going to bring through and try and get through before the end of the session.
Yeah, no, it is very interesting that we do have the legislature in session on Monday, and he has promised immediate bills in front of the House to start moving on some of these files. Caroline, what do you think about what he said about housing? Well, it's exactly what I was kind of pointing at in my first comments there. I mean, he's instantly separating himself from that record. As Jeffrey pointed out, I mean, he's at the cabinet table, but not in charge. I mean, he was minister responsible for housing when, um, you know, the average Vancouver house surpassed $2 million. Uh, The benchmark cost of a home in Surrey increased over $600,000 under the NDP. Three quarters of non-owners have given up ever owning uh, the idea, given up on the idea of ever owning a home, uh, according to polling that's been done. So it's not a great record. He was minister responsible for housing, and we're already seeing them saying, oh, don't worry, you know, he was never really in charge, but now he is, we're going to see something different. I mean, I have my my very strong skepticism in that regard, but, I mean, we'll see. Yeah, what are you skeptical about? Why, why do you think it, you're skeptical? Like, is it because of the um, what the ambitious targets he's laid? Or he hasn't really laid out any specific targets. I mean, he's talked a big game, but we're still waiting to see some details. Yeah, we are. And I mean, you know, you heard it from David Eby himself. He's saying, like, people, middle class people, people with good wages can't find a place that they can afford to to buy. They can't find a place that they can afford to rent. Uh, These are all true things. And I guess what my skepticism derives from the idea that, you know, you're, you're five years minister responsible for housing. You're responsible for that file. Presumably you're a senior member of government with influence. So either he yeah. was there and, and he was unable to do his job and didn't have the influence or or he was just, I, I guess the, the line is that John Horgan somehow prevented him from, from achieving that. I'm, I'm not really sure exactly what the, what the mm. explanation is for why he wasn't able to accomplish that while he was in government as Minister of Housing. But um, the, I guess my skepticism lies in the fact that is he suddenly going to be able to pull off a big change in that regard with such a significant uh, challenge in terms of people being able to, to just simply afford a place to live. Uh, given that he was unable to achieve it before. Jeffrey Ferrier, what do you say to that? Uh, I say that every premier who's come in at midterm and not the general election has succeeded because they have done something that the former premier could not do. You look at Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, you look at Ralph Klein in Alberta, you look at Glenn Clark in B.C. These are all folks who were agents of change from within an existing government who staked out a new vision and a new approach for uh, while coming in at midterm and won uh, re-election against the odds. I think that's exactly what David Eby needs to do. I think that John Horgan's strength was very much in uh, bringing people together after a, a number of years of very divisive government. I think those skills uh, were not as well suited uh, to addressing some of the intractable problems that we have in housing healthcare downtown east side and david eby uh, a man of action kind of guy who will kick down doors my brother had a a, a toy action man you know the the british gi joe i think yeah. that's the mentality that that david eby is going to bring to this job and i think it's appropriate for the times and i think that's what's going to set him in good stead as he takes on uh, his new responsibility Okay, one of the big challenges for this new premier will undoubtedly be British Columbia's stressed-out healthcare system. And especially what we're seeing in the past few days, the surge in sick kids, the brutal wait times to get help at BC Children's Hospital if you have a sick child, over-the-counter medications for children running out in pharmacies across the province, 
All of these challenges now staring at David Eby as he takes power here. Got Rachel Thexton standing by to discuss this with her story of her own sick child and her efforts to get help for her daughter. Have a listen to this here first. This is Global News reporter Kamal Karamali. The coughing and fever. Fever. And they look so really sick. The triple threat of COVID-19, the flu, and respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, starting its spread across B.C., putting pressure on an already strained healthcare system. There's nowhere to sit. There's nowhere to stand. It's insane. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Rachel Thexton. Rachel is Metro Mom, Principal at Thexton Public Relations. Very pleased to welcome Rachel to the show. Hi, thanks for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Nice to be here. Okay, it's nice to talk to you again. Now, let's talk about the situation with your child. Now, when did your child um, get sick? So it was about um, eight days before we took her into the hospital that she started symptoms. Mm. At the time, I had a five-year-old son who had been diagnosed with pneumonia and was being medicated for that, and she was showing um, almost exact symptoms, so I was quite concerned. Oh, my goodness. How old is she? She's two. Oh, two years old. Oh, isn't that something? Okay, so how? what were her symptoms? Like, how bad, how, how rough was she here? So she started with just congestion, regular cold and flu. Um, I, it takes a lot for me to take my little ones to the ER. I don't want to, I know the system is, is maxed out. Um, but after days of intensifying fever that was becoming resistant to medication, a cough that was continuing for days and days and becoming, you know, so bad that she wasn't able to sleep at night, Dehydration, you know, not filling up diapers with pee, things like that that are, you know, danger signs in little ones. I decided it was time to to take her in. So our first yeah. stop was BC Children's. Okay, uh, and what Children's what happened what you got there? <laughs> yeah, so there was a, a line so big, we went at night. We thought it would be better to go at night. Maybe there would be fewer families. There were actually more. So the triage line alone was out the door. So it would have taken us hours just to just to register. So we said, you know what, this isn't going to work. Turned around and went back to our home community of Burnaby, went to the uh, Burnaby emergency room instead. Um, we were quickly registered at triage there um, and waited for quite some time. We're brought back to a room, uh, waited in that room for quite some time. Uh, during this entire time, we're at six plus hours, there was no communication. So no one came in talked to her, looked at her, took her temperature. They took her temp at triage, but that had been, you know, almost six and a half hours earlier. It had spiked since then. Um, and our conditions were, were very, very poor. So there was no communication. No one saw us at about almost six and a half hours. I said, you know what? This child needs sleep. She's not able to sleep here. Uh, we're going to have to find an alternative way to get her help. And we headed home. Okay, so when we look back at this this odyssey you went on here, like how how long were you? How long did, did you try overall to get help for your daughter here? Like how many how many how long were you at BC Children's before you gave up there? Not very long. I mean, I think we okay. stayed maybe fifteen minutes. It was very clear that they they were they were completely overwhelmed. I mean, I, oh, felt, yeah. I felt for them. It was just a, it was just swamped with sick kids, and I mean really sick kids. Um, you could tell. I mean, children were just coughing like crazy. Their eyes were red as can be. I mean, these were parents with sincerely sick children. So we left quickly. I think in, in total that evening, I left the house uh, at around 8.30. Um, we arrived home here at around 
Wow. Okay. And now you've decided, but you just basically give up on getting help at the hospital and just brought her home? We did. Yeah, we brought her home. So luckily the day after, my family doctor, who's wonderful, um, and I do want to note that I had called my family doctor and and pediatrician that we're in touch with, and they um, weren't available or directed us to the ER. And, um, but my family doctor had heard about what happened and was amazing. Got her a chest x-ray ordered right away. We got into the office yesterday, uh, and it turns out that she had a sinus infection, double ear infection. I needed the antibiotics, and today she's, you know, things are looking up. She needed a, you know, a quick exam and an antibiotic prescription. And that's, you know, what needed to happen to have her turn a corner. I'm, I'm really glad to hear she's doing better. This, so this whole experience for you, Rachel, how does, it, how does it make you feel about the status of our services here right now in our system? Oh, I'm so, so sad for our, for, for our health care system right now. Mike, to be yeah. honest, I defend our health care system. You know, when people say, you know, that Canada's health care system is a mess, I always say it is not. We have amazing, amazing support in our health care system. Um, our mental health care system could use some support, but... Other than that, I mean, we do have good resources, but now I feel as though we are at a breaking point. I can see it breaking. And when it comes to kids, that's especially, especially important that we really, really focus on that. And I hope that's a priority for the upcoming government. Rachel, I'm glad your daughter's feeling better. Thanks for sharing the story today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.